The following episode of Annals on Call is brought to you by Annals of Internal Medicine. For more episodes and links to CME and MOC, visit go.annals.org slash oncall. Participant statements on this podcast reflect the views of the participants and not necessarily those of the Journal or the American College of Physicians, unless so identified. Ones that are the least expensive are iron sucrose, and it has to give multiple doses, ferric gluconate, which has to be given multiple doses, and then iron extran is about the same price as well. Welcome to Annals on Call, a podcast based upon articles from the Annals of Internal Medicine in which we discuss the implications of the article for you, the listener. This is Dr. Bob Centaur. I'm Professor Emeritus at the University of Alabama at Birmingham and former chair of the Board of Regents for the American College of Physicians. This episode of Annals on Call features an article titled Risks for Anaphylaxis with Intravenous Iron Formulations. It's from the March 2022 issue of the Annals. Joining us on this podcast are two of the authors of this article, Dr. Jeffrey Carson, who is the provost at New Brunswick at Rutgers Biomedical and Health Sciences. He's been chief of the Division of Journal Internal Medicine until 2015. Also, we have Dr. Soko Setaguchi, who is a cardiologist, board-certified internist, and epidemiologist. She's professor of medicine, director of clinical research education, director of clinical researcher track in the medicine residency program, the Department of Medicine, Rutgers Robert Wood Johnson Medical School. She's also professor of epidemiology at the same school. Thank you for joining us on this podcast. Soko and Jeff, thanks so much for joining us to discuss this really interesting paper that you all are part of about anaphylaxis and IV iron. Maybe you could start by describing why you decided to do this study. Thank you, Bob. Um, thank you for inviting us to participate in the podcast. I'm excited to be here. So concerns for hypersensitivity reaction in IV iron is not a new question. It goes back to prior to 90s. The most well-known formulation associated with hypersensitivity reaction is a high molecular weight iron dextran, which is actually no longer manufactured and available. While this question is old, we recognize that this is a clinically significant question as IV iron use has been increasing over time for various reasons. And also, especially because the hypersensitivity risk has not been well characterized in newer formulations and also in low molecular weight iron dextrans. So the paper, you discussed five iron formulations. I was only familiar with two of them because that's all my hospital has. Tell us what those formulations are and discuss a little bit about convenience and cost of those. And my guess is that many people work in a situation like I do where you have one or two choices and other people are going to be in a situation where they can get whatever they want. Yeah, Bob, as well, thank you so much for inviting us to participate in this podcast. We chose the drugs that we could study in the Medicare database. And there are five drugs there that are available, um, iron sucrose, uh, ferric carboxymaltose, ferric gluconate, ferroxmetol, and iron dextran. But this is the low molecular weight version of that, not the high molecular weight version of that. Like you, 
we only have access to one of these preparations, which actually in our hospital is iron sucrose. And even, you know, since we work at a university setting, uh, we send all our patients to our hospital for the, at the infusion center to get IV iron. And so we're just uh, have access to iron sucrose instead of the two drugs that you actually have. So what are the differences? Well, there are some very important differences, uh, and it really has to do with trying to administer approximately one gram of iron to a patient to replete their stores. Okay. That's kind of, that tends to be the average dose that we're trying to administer to patients. And so some of these drugs can be given one shot. Okay. So the ferricarbox maltose, you give one shot and you've got your gram. The ferromoxitol, once again, you can give a gram dose of that and be done. And iron dextran is another drug that you can give one gram dose and be done. And so you can imagine how much more convenient that is for the, for the patient, most importantly, especially in an outpatient setting for the nurses, because you know they don't have to keep coming back and giving multiple doses. And that's a really big advantage. However, iron sucrose can be given uh, in different doses. That, and, and I want to just emphasize here that it depends on the clinical setting. And there are some doses that are used that are not traditional FDA approved doses. And so for example, iron sucrose can be given at 200 milligrams times five, or it can be given 500 milligrams twice uh, with approximately two weeks apart for that particular drug. And ferric gluconate is another uh, popular drug, um, but that can that is typically given in, in 125 milligrams or 250 milligrams up to five to eight times. So you can see where the convenience factor is really important. Now, the cost is a critical issue, of course, Bob, and the ones that are the least expensive are iron sucrose, okay, and it has to give multiple doses, ferric gluconate, which has to be given multiple doses, and then iron extran is about the same price as well, and that can be given in one dose, but as we're going to describe, uh, we found uh, results that raised the concern that it may have uh, more anaphylaxis, which we'll describe in a minute. So when you balance the pros and cons of this, you're talking about cost and you're talking about convenience and, and they don't all perfectly align. That's great. You know, before we started recording, uh, we, we had a small conversation about the increase in use of IV iron. It seems to me like it must've been about 10, 15 years ago that I started becoming much more aggressive in my patients with iron deficiency in the hospital of trying to load them with iron. The hospital that I was working in at the time, which is a community hospital, we could do iron sucrose over four hours, 500 milligrams today, and then again tomorrow because there were some data that it was perfectly safe to do that. And I can uh, actually do that uh, now. I became a big fan of low molecular weight iron dextran because I could do it all in one hour. Is this a national thing about the increase in IV iron and, and I'd love for you all to opine why that's so? So let me begin. There's no doubt, and Soka will give you some data, how the amount of IV iron use is climbing rapidly. And I think it's for several reasons. And this is, like you say, a little bit of conjecture. The first is that oral iron has a fair amount of side effects, okay? Patients have a lot of GI side effects. They don't like the fact their stools turn dark. They don't like the constipation that occurs with it. So there's a fair amount of 
of GI intolerance. And what that leads to is poor compliance. Two is that oral iron needs to be given for a long time, right? You know, if you're going to you're going to replete the storage, you may need to give it up to six months, and so you have to take a pill for that period of time. Now, what's really changed, and with a minor digression, Bob, if you'll allow me, is that we've learned that giving every other day iron actually is probably as efficacious as giving daily. And giving it just once a day, which does significantly reduce the side effects. So um, what's happened because of those side effects that, we, that I mentioned is that clinicians have said, well, if we can just give a IV dose that is safe and easy to administer, then we can solve that patient's iron deficiency very quickly, make sure they get the, the, the right dose of medication, not depend on uh, compliance with taking the pills. And so it's just so much easier to do that it's become a very common practice. And if you believe that the safety is quite good, then that's another reason why you would take that approach. So can we, um, you have some data on that? Sure. In our Medicare data, we really cannot assess the use of IV iron in the hospital. However, in our sort of study where we looked at outpatient use of IV iron, we noticed that uh, we only looked at the first time users. However, that the doses that administered back in 2008, which is the first year of our study versus 2013, there is a more than a double of uh, dosages um, in each uh, from 2008 to 2018. It's always nice when someone can give data to support our anecdotal beliefs. So let's talk about the study. Sort of a complicated study, but if y'all could uh, explain the methods in a way that I can understand. Sure. So as we all know, the most valid approach to understand, you know, comparative safety, which is what we're trying to look at here, uh, of medications would be a randomized trial. However, not all comparative effective studies can be uh, done in clinical trials for reasons such as ethical concerns or feasibility. So feasibility was the biggest piece here. We needed, you know, tens of thousands of people to look at the risk of anaphylaxis, which was rare. So we conducted a retrospective cohort study using Medicare data. Our method in the paper is actually described following a sort of framework called uh, target trial emulation. So we tried to, you know, uh, come up with a hypothetical target trial and then try to lay out our methodology of how we formed a patient population, how we defined intervention, in this case, is different IV iron formulations, uh, how we define the outcome, which is the anaphylaxis in our paper. So just to going through that sort of pieces, population, we focus on older adults who had no prior IV iron use. So we focus on the new users of IV iron, no history of anaphylaxis, non-dialysis patient. Uh, these are the major inclusion uh, exclusion criteria. And then in terms of uh, interventions, we looked at five IV iron formulations that are mentioned by Jeff earlier. We use iron sucrose as a control or reference group in, in the analysis. And then in terms of outcome, we looked at serious anaphylaxis event that is defined as you know, hospitalization or ED, ED visit or use of epinephrine uh, in, uh, in the data. 
And then the difference between trials and then our studies, of course, it is observational, so it's not randomized. So to combat the bias coming from non-randomization, which is what we call confounding, we use propensity score-based method called inverse probability treatment weight weighting. We also use new users design. That's why we focus on the first time iron users, which also eliminate different types of biases in the observational study. I think most listeners uh, have heard us talk about propensity uh, analyses on multiple uh, podcasts, but it's a nice way to try to make sure that you're comparing similar to similar prior to getting the iron in, and seems to be the right way to do these kinds of studies. And I applaud you for Sounds like a lot of analysis uh, to do this. So now that we have uh, talked about why and uh, how we got to, what did we find? There's two major messages here. And the very most important one, Bob, is the rate of anaphylaxis was really, really low. Okay, so we, we calculated it. Uh, we, we, you know, we adjusted for these baseline characteristics that, that Soko mentioned, um, and we calculated per 10,000 first administrations. And what did we find? Like we found three of the drugs had about one case per 10,000. And even the highest drug that had the most frequent anaphylaxis uh, cases was 9.8 per 10,000. So even in the worst case scenario, the rate of anaphylaxis was incredibly low. Okay, incredibly low. And I think that is by far and away the most important clinical take home from this manuscript. Now, we did find some differences. And the the differences were with iron dextran, the low molecular weight version had about a 9.8 fold higher uh, rate at 9.8 per 10,000, which overall had, you know, about a nine fold higher risk of of anaphylaxis compared to uh, iron sucrose. Now, uh, once again, it's still ultimately at the absolute rate is quite low. Another point related to that particular drug was remember that when we did this study, the high molecular iron dextran was still on the market. And we didn't have the ability to separate that from the low molecular weight. So what we did was we repeated the analysis uh, when uh, the, the high molecular weight preparation was no longer sold, was no longer uh, on the market, and, the res- and confirmed th- that the low molecular weight version did appear to have this particular issue. One other important point to emphasize is the confidence intervals are pretty wide, and that ultimately, while we do appear to show a, a higher risk with, with iron dextran, we also showed a smaller but significant higher risk with thermoxetol. So that was our basic findings. But I, you know, I'm repeating myself, but want to keep emphasizing the overall rate with every one of these drugs was really, really low. As you know from listening to some of my podcasts, I like to reinterpret. And I'm sort of a math nerd. And so the risk with the uh, iron dextran is uh, 0.1%. And the risk with iron sucrose is about 0.01%. And that's another way of, of stating how rare it is. Did, did I get the math right? I believe so. Okay. Now, one thing you did not address is repeat dosing. And I don't know if you have any data on that or if that's a future study that we have to wait for, but I've had some patients who were on regular monthly or every other month 
uh, IV iron who eventually got anaphylaxis? Was that just bad luck or is there some kind of a priming effect or do we know? So in our study, we only focused on the first time users and then did not look at the uh, you know, uh, repeated uh, dose uh, event. However, though, in the previous study, uh, I think it was published in JAMA in 2015 using similar or actually even larger Medicare data showed that the uh, risk of anaphylaxis in repeated dosing is actually lower than the first time uh, sort of users. So that's one thing we know of. The, the, the other reason we didn't do it in, in our sort of data set is because we are, as I said, the previous study that looked at this was like four times larger than our data. So we really didn't have enough sort of power to look at it in, the, in, the, uh, in our data set, which we expected to have a you know, smaller event rates. First of all, congratulations on this study. This is something that I know all of... Uh... Anybody who works in the hospital or, or uh, primary care and all house officers and students are interested in this because knowing that it's a small risk, but you guys lived with the data and you thought about the data and you wrote it. What are your big take-home messages? So Soko, why don't you go first and then we'll let Jeff have the last word because we know he's going to have the last word anyway. <laughs> That's great. The, uh, it actually was Jeff who was going to have the last word, but I, I want to repeat what just, 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 uh, Jeff said, which is that you know we found that the overall risk of anaphylaxis is really, really low in this population. You know, we focused on elderly patients. So the other sort of message I want to also provide is that you know generalizability of our result is really. Uh, strongest in the older uh, adults uh, may not be applicable to younger sort of populations such as you know pregnant women, which is completely excluded in our data set, and also uh, ESRD uh, on dialysis population. I agree with that, Bob. Although I think you're going to have the last uh, word on this anyway. But uh, you know, once again, low rates. You know, watch out for it. But you know, I I think clinicians should feel comfortable to use these drugs. You know, it's a bit about the convenience of administering the drug and the cost related to it. But I think they're really important new treatments for us that allow us to replete patients' iron rapidly. And iron deficiency is the most common cause of anemia, certainly in the world. And, and so I think this is a really important tool. You know, we're pleased that we could quantitate what that risk looks like. I'd like to thank both of y'all for participating uh, in this really important article because it really addresses a question that we're all concerned about. So thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. My pleasure. Thank you, Bob, for having us. Now it's time for Bob's Pearls. This study documents what we have seen, and that is an increase in the use of IV iron, both in the inpatient and outpatient practice of internal medicine. This probably occurs because of the side effects of oral iron, uh, which include GI side effects and the difficulty of having to take oral iron for many, many months. Fortunately, this study shows that the risk of anaphylaxis from IV iron is very low. It is different for different formulations. It ranges from 0.01% up to 0.1% or one in a thousand. So we can feel very comfortable in delivering iron this way to the benefit of our patients. Thank you so much for listening to our podcast.
For more episodes of Annals on Call and links to CME and MOC, visit go.annals.org slash on call. Participant statements on this podcast reflect the views of the participants and not necessarily those of the journal or the American College of Physicians, unless so identified. The information contained in the podcast should never be used as a substitute for clinical judgment.